Who will pay for college? Financing your child's education is confusing on its own, and divorce adds another layer of complexity. Learn how divorce affects financial aid, costly mistakes to avoid, and what you need in your divorce settlement agreement to make college affordable. Listen to hear how colleges calculate what you're expected to pay, when 529 plans are helpful, what types of financial aid are available, and how to structure your divorce agreement to pay less for college. I'm Sharon Pastore, and this is the Healthy Divorce Podcast. You're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Join us as we help you navigate your divorce without going broke, relationships in ruin, or ending up in court. You'll get into financial and emotional shape, make sense of the legal process, get strong enough to negotiate for yourself, be a mindful parent, stay amicable with your spouse so you can get a fresh start. Please welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. So today's call is on paying for college after divorce and who's going to pay for college, how are we going to finance it, and my experience is, is no matter what the age of the children are, you know, whether they're newborns or they're, you know, 15, 16 years old, it's still an important, it's an important question for parents they really think about. So we're excited that you're on today and we're really going to help to give you information that will be useful in this process for you. And I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Judy who um, is a certified college planning specialist and retirement income certified professional. And she is truly, truly dedicated to helping people avoid the mistakes that she made as she was going through this process. And as founder of APNG Financial, and its subsidiary, APNG College Planning, her mission is to help families send their children to the school of their dreams without using all their savings and sacrificing their lifestyle or retirement or going plain broke. So I personally am totally in on this call and hope that you are too. Judy is a member and partner of NACPE, the National Association of College Planning Experts, the leading authority on getting students accepted to their best suited college and getting grants and scholarships regardless of income or assets. APNG and college planning experts have helped over 2,500 families gain over $20 million in financial aid. Judy's been featured on KYW, which is a local station here in Philadelphia. She's a member of NICCP, the National Association of Certified College Planners, the National Education Association, the Disciplined Advisor Network, the National Ethics Association, and the Better Business Bureau. And so, Judy, like, you know your stuff. I'm excited to have you on, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Ah, thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to this call. We're planning a ton of information for you, so I hope we can get through it all. I know. So, like, you know, if I hope everyone's got their 50 minutes really set aside or 45 minutes now because Judy has so much information. And, you know, Judy, as I said to you when we spoke before this call, is I'm going to play the person who knows nothing here. So I really make sure that the information that you transmit to us is really helps people, regardless of what stage they're in and parenting or thinking about college, to really gain the information that they need. And, you know, let's just sort of starting out, I mean, 
thinking about paying for college is probably, it's hugely anxiety producing. Um, And, you know, thinking about the amounts of money and the cost of college since, you know, you or I went to college and what it is now. I mean, I don't even know if you have a statistic as to what the exponential growth in the cost of college has been over the last 20 years, but it's enormous, right? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. To give you an idea, uh, the Consumer Price Index has risen like 115% since 1985, while the cost of college has gone up 500%. Right, right. And so, and we all know that our salaries have like not gone up 500%, right? (laughs) Over that same period of time. (laughs) So this idea of paying for college is a whole different ballgame than, you know, it even was, as you said, you know, 15 years ago or something like that, or as Many people were on the call maybe 20 years ago for them or something like that. So this call is really going to be about helping us to make discerning choices. The other thing that makes it complicated in addition to just like the sheer cost and the magnitude of that, I think is because things do change over time. I mean, we're going to get into it. You and I have talked about, you know, when 529 plans, as an example, first came out, it looked one way and now things change. The things change in the whole funding formulas on college sides. They change in terms of the government. They change in terms of these plans and how important it is to really be up to date and really know how this process works, right? Uh, well, because it's just so tricky. It's so complicated. It's so convoluted. And I always like to say it's counterintuitive. It does not work the way you think it should. And therein lies the problem. You think you're doing the right thing and it comes back to basically smack you in the face. So what I try to do is help you not have that happen. So, Judy, we're going to get into, like, all the details, but maybe one of the things that would be great is for you to share just a little bit about your story and what actually happened to you that makes you so passionate and motivated to be doing this work. So what's your story? Oh, well, my story is I I retired in 2008. I had an actual different business at that point. I ran a very successful media buying company, which is a firm that's responsible for putting all of the ads that that are exposed to every day in front of your face. Um, uh, and I felt very secure in being able to say, oh, time, I'm going to retire now. Uh, and that was in 2008. Of course, my timing was perfect, if you remember what happened then. Uh, and my daughter was going through college right at that point. So I had no money coming in and all this money going out. Uh, and I became very angry about what I let happen to my retirement and made it my business to find out what I could do about it. And during that time, I learned two very important things on two ends of the spectrum. One, the importance of having a, retu- uh, a secure retirement. Uh, and the other was the absolutely devastating effect that paying for college can have on your retirement if you don't do it properly. And I learned that I had paid entirely too much for college uh, because I just didn't know the college process. But I certainly know it now. uh, And I became a certified college planning specialist so I could help other people not make the mistakes that I made. Right. So what happened to you, it sounds like, is that, you know, with your investment portfolio going down because of the crashes that we had in 2008 and the way your money had been structured is you ended up using a lot of retirement money to pay for college and then ended up without the money you needed to retire and here you are back at work. Uh, Kind of. I actually, I'll get into it later, but actually I had saved for college. It was just that I, I I, I saved in a way that I thought was the right way and it turned out not to be actually. So, and we'll get into that. So you will find out about that. 
All right, fantastic. So let's begin our journey and start with the very basics. And so the very basics really being, you know, if we have all the money and we can pay, you know, if we're going to private school, $250,000 a year plus, you know, all that kind of stuff, then we're in great shape, whatever, perhaps you're still going to share with us about savings. But um, for the many of us that don't fall into that situation, um, perhaps, that we're many people are going to apply for financial aid. And even if we have saved, we're going to apply for financial aid, perhaps for some reasons. So, you, you know, what is always a different apply for financial you should always, always fill out the FAFSA. Uh, which All is right, so good. So start here and tell us what the forms are and why we should always do it. <laughs> sure. Okay. There are basically two financial application forms. There's the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid, and that is used by every school in the country. Uh, and then there is the CSS profile, which is also required by about 300 of them, of mostly private schools, including all of the elite schools that you think of as the IVs, uh, and schools like Stanford, uh, Northwestern, uh, Amherst, things of that nature. Uh, the important thing when you're divorced is knowing how to fill them out because they're difficult to fill out in any case because they can be tricky. And when you add divorce into the mix, it becomes a minefield if you don't know what you're doing. And that's the reason right. for this call. <laughs> that's the reason for this call. So tell us before we talk, and then we're going to go directly into, you know, if we are considering divorce or we are divorced, how we're going to fill these out. But when you say everybody should be filling out the FAFSA, so why is that? Why should everybody regardless be filling out the FAFSA? Well, for one, uh, the FAFSA is the form that uh, determines the federal aid for which you will be uh, for which you will be uh, eligible. Uh, and that means anybody who wants to take advantage of student loans, which you're entitled to, uh, you can, can only get them if you fill out the FAFSA. Right. So that's and the interest rates you, on the FAFSA, and, and the interest rates around student loans are such that we really, you know, they're a good, they're a good resource for us? Yes, they're much yeah, they're good loans, and they're 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 much lower than most and than most other loans anywhere, and they can and then they're they're deferred, so that you don't even have to start paying them until after the student graduates college, six months after the student graduates college, as a matter of fact. And there's all different ways in, in which you can actually pay down that debt, and that's a whole other topic. But right, that, okay. but it's important, so, so you have that option. Right. So now in the case of divorce, so we were talking about, you know, who fills out these forms. So let's start with the FAFSA first. And why does this make a difference in divorce? Who fills it out? Well, because uh, only the custodial parent fills out the FAFSA and only the custodial parent's income and assets are reported on the FAFSA. Uh, the custodial parent is the parent with whom the child spends the most time over the past year. Uh, and that year actually ends uh, on the year up to the date that you fill out that FAFSA. Uh, uh, I always say that there's no such thing as you know, a 50-50 custody because there's 365 days in the year and there's going to be one parent with whom the child spends more time than the other. Uh, but if you really want to take the 50-50 custody stand and you really think that you have it even split, the deciding factor will be who paid the most financial support, which may not be the best choice because the lower income uh, earner is eligible for more financial than the higher income earner. And usually the one who gives more higher financial support is the higher income earner. Uh, if, you've, if you are a 50-50, if parents who have 50-50 custody actually have the option to decide who will be the custodial parent. 
Right. So in what you're describing to us is that as we go and we sit and we're working out our parenting agreement and our custody agreement and we're keeping college in mind here is that because there's federal financial aid available, because it's a great loan to have if there's going to be loans for college, right, it's a great loan to have, that we would want to be strategic in thinking about um, who who becomes the custodial parent for the sake of um, completing the applications. And so the person who has the lower income may really be. And then, you know, there's all kinds of ways. We're not going to go into the legalities of that because that's really for the attorneys or the mediators. But, you know, in how different ways that income can appear in an agreement and things like that. But certainly this key factor that you've said is that the lower the income of the person completing the application, the greater the eligibility for the financial aid award through FAFSA. And so that that would be something we would really want or, to be mindful about. Or the CSS about. profile also. Okay. Or the CSS profile. So, and that there really is a choice. And, you know, one of the things I just want to raise, because I know it can be emotional tied in is who has and custody has legal custody and then custodial custody right so you know who has legal custody oftentimes it's both parents one may have a primary as you're saying custody when it comes to the day-to-day but when we're considering college this is like we're trying to think separately so for 50 50 it's not like I'm giving some advantage in terms of my time with my child if I give you the primary custody for the sake of the application that so we're really thinking about how do we um, situate ourselves best for the system that we shouldn't get caught up in in the emotional part of a oh, wait a second should I be saying that you have primary custody or you have more right. or things like that in terms well, of the, the emotionality the custodial parent uh, in terms of uh, Financial forms, it's not the same thing as legal custody. So you, right. you, don't, you don't have to fear that you're giving up legal custody by not being a custodial parent. Right. And so, you know, we're giving language here to things that if whether people are going through mediation or they're having attorneys or whatever it is, they're thinking about it, that, you know, you have the language to really think about, you know, who does it make sense for the purposes of college planning to identify as custodial parent. So... You know, then when we come down, there are some real distinctions. You said both the CSS and the FAFSA, you know, consider who the custodial parent is first and what their income levels. But there are some real differences in these applications as well. So um, in terms of the FAFSA, it does not consider certain kinds of things that the CSS does. So how do these two applications differ? Okay. On the FAFSA, uh you do not report the income or the assets of the non-custodial parent. Uh, but any child support or alimony that you receive must be reported uh, on, on the FAFSA. Uh, and you, have, you can't, I mean, it is actually even possible to actually change custodial parent from year to year, but be very careful. Um, you may need to prove it. It's a red flag. Um, it may come in, into play if one of the, if one of the parents remarries, uh, because if one of the parent one of the parents remarries and that's the custodial parent, the step parent's income and assets will be counted, will be counted, and it, they'll be counted even if there's a prenup. FAFSA does not care whether or not you have a prenup. If you if you remarry and you are the custodial parent, your new husband's uh, or, or wife. wife's. <laughs> 
uh, income and assets get counted. Uh, on the CSS profile, <clears throat> which is not a, which is administered by the college board and not the federal government, um, it's financially much more invasive. There are more questions asked, and it's not standardized form. Um, they can uh, they can interpret information differently on the FAFSA. Anything that is given on the FAFSA will be treated the same way by every school that uses the FAFSA and that only uses the FAFSA. FAFSA. Um, the CSS profile. Um, is very different uh, because the schools are not standardized in that way. Um, well, for example, if this, uh, the CSS profile will normally ask for information on both parents. Uh, and if both parents are remarried, they can even ask for information on all four parents. Uh, when filling out the profile online, your marital status is going to trigger, uh, may trigger a, a non-custodial parent form. And when that happens, it, it, it'll you would fill out the information to actually the email that you, that would be used to be able to reach the other parent. You don't fill out any of the actual uh, financial information. The college board will email the other ex-spouse to get that information. Uh, so you don't have to worry about knowing what the information is. Uh, not all CSS profile schools will even require the non-custodial parent form, but I would say don't jump for joy when, you know, if they don't, because they could easily just have their own that they require, and uh, so you need to check the website of the college in question. Um, the problem with that is, even though you don't have to fill it out, is that if you're ex-spouse is not willing to uh, be forthcoming with that information and not want to fill it out, that can hold up the, admin, you know, the admission process. And if that does happen, make sure that you notify the college admissions and financial aid administrators of that situation. Okay, so you just gave us a lot of information, so I'm just going to like distill it out here and um, break it down a little bit. So one of the important things that you said is um, that child support and alimony is considered as part of the income, so that's going to be part of the custodial parent. Um, if but in terms of giving it, yes. If they're the ones receiving it, right. So, and in terms of the custodial parent remarrying, now, um, that as soon as they remarry, that in terms of both applications, it sounds like that that step parent or that future, that new spouse's income is considered part of the application as well, that it's going to be um, asked for. And, you know, you, you put something in there that said, when you might change or not change custodial, the, the status of who the custodial parent. So if we have a couple who, you know, gets a divorce, let's just say for right now that the custodial parent is dad. Um, but then dad's deciding to remarry, future spouse has a significant income. Might that couple decide before they start filling out applications to switch the custodial parent to mom? Is that what you're suggesting? Yes, but realize that has to have already taken effect and have been in effect for the year preceding the date that you're filling out the forms. Okay, so that's really good information to know. So, you know, that's only relevant and applicable either if we're really planning ahead or if the situation really arises that way, that it has to have been in effect and be demonstrable, I assume, you know, in some ways, you know, in, in some tangible ways, the fact that that change in custody has happened before, you know, for a year before the application is submitted. Okay. Okay. 
Um, one of the things that arose for me that I just realized I didn't get clarification on up front, so I want to make sure that um, everyone else feels clear, too, is what exactly the CSS profile is. So the FAFSA is the federal government, and so it's standardized across all colleges. But the CSS, certain ones will, certain colleges will adopt as an additional form. But then what I think you've said is they can use it however it is they deem to use it. So they may take that application. Do they restructure it or do they use the information differently? Uh, well, they actually can interpret the, you know, the information differently, and they actually can ask supplemental questions to the base form of the of the profile. And yes, every single school can, they don't all, but some do, ask even you know, more questions than will originally appear so that the, the, the application can become longer and longer depending on how many different schools you apply to. Uh, but the purpose mm-hmm. of, of both of those forms uh, is to determine the financial need. The reason on the CSS profile is so much more invasive is, is it's, and it's used primarily by elite private schools. They're the ones who can actually wind up giving you much more money than the other schools. Mm-hmm. And so they need to know, uh, are they right in giving you this money? So that, that's why it's so much more uh, invasive. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. You know, then at the end of this piece that we just shared, we started to talk about um, if there's an, an ex-spouse who decides that they're unwilling to complete the application. And so, or, you know, a new spouse, like a married spouse who doesn't want to be invaded in that way. So what, what happens in those cases and what are the options if, you know, we happen to have got divorced and now my ex is refusing to complete the forms, what happens to my child? What happens to me in those situations? Uh, well, okay. Well, on the FAFSA, it's not going to be a problem for you if you refuse because there are no forms for him to fill out. Uh, on a CSS profile, um, as I said, if he does refuse or she refuses to fill it out, uh, you would need, uh, I would strongly advise you to contact the schools to which you are applying and notify them of that situation so they know. So it doesn't hold the it doesn't hold up the application more than you know for a longer period of time than it has to, which could put your you know the actual application process in jeopardy for for going to that school. So you know that's one that's one route you can take. Okay. okay. Right. And what if, you know, it's the, and the same would be the case if it's like a married new spouse who suddenly says, well, I don't want to be filling out all these forms, you know. I mean, we got married, but that doesn't mean that for your child from the other marriage, I now want to have to fill out all these forms and things like that, that you would do the same thing? Yeah, well, that becomes a real problem. You know, that would actually present a real problem, and that I would deal with very specifically. So I don't want to give any general information about that (laughs) because it's too complicated. Okay, but that's a, a situation in which somebody really would want to have a college. You, the real, the real, the real thing to do, knowing that if that's if that's a, uh, if, if that's coming up and your your child is of college age, is to take that into account, uh, especially if the marriage is is coming up. Make sure that you know the answer to that question in advance, mm-hmm. and if necessary, okay. quite I would say to postpone the wedding until after college years if that's if it's really an important thing to you or you can or you can or make arrangements to be able to change custodial parent mm-hmm. 
Right. Although it sounds like even if, you know, especially with the CSS, all four parents may be included or all four adults, I should say, would be included. So I think it's something where you definitely want to seek some additional support because you don't want to be in the situation of having feel, felt like you've completed all of the forms, you've done everything you were supposed to do, and now suddenly everything's stuck by, by surprise. So, you know, should you find yourself in those situations where it seems like there might be you know, challenges in the process for any of these reasons is, you know, to contact somebody who really can give you additional support around how to navigate in this terrain because you don't want your child's application to be held up for this reason. Well, correct. Well, um, colleges have will and can actually access your your. Uh, tax returns. So mm-hmm. the information is go- if the information is going to be on the tax returns, they're going to have access to it anyway. Okay. Okay. So I think we're going to move now, like that we've clarified this piece, is how the financial information is actually interpreted. So, you know, what kinds of stuff is collected and how is it interpreted by people on the other side? So walk us through this, Judy. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Um, the treatment of financial information, as, uh, as we mentioned before, is a standardized thing on the FAFSA. So, um, it's it's not a question. They're pretty. They're fairly straightforward questions. Your only problem is knowing how to answer them because you can you can put information that is not required and that can can really uh, really really mess up uh, the financial aid to which you actually uh, are eligible. Um, so it's just knowing how to fill out the forms correctly. Um, the difference is what types of questions are asked on uh, on the CSS profile as compared to the FAFSA, the FAFSA, um, and they they will go the, the CSS profile will go into uh, much greater detail on the types of questions. Um, for instance, uh, the house and the, the your, your residential home is is not listed on on the FAFSA. It's not considered, but it is on the CSS profile. And there are other things along those lines that will be wait, will will be considered on one uh, by one system of uh, uh, financial aid um, for an application form, and not the other. Right. And so ultimately what they're doing is they're taking all this information here to try to put together a determination as to what you can afford to pay, which is something, you know, you've the expected family contribution that you would be able to make toward this college so that they can determine, well, if this is how much you can be expected to pay, then here's how much you may become eligible for, right? Exactly. Exactly. In other words, here's, it's really based on a, in a simple for, a formula that goes like this. It's the cost of college. It's the cost of attendance of that college, which includes your tuition, your, your, your books, your fees. Um, uh, what a college may actually say is personal expense of the student, which I will tell you is always underestimated. Uh, um, anyway, all of that is included. Uh, so it's the cost of, of that minus your expected family contribution, which is determined by how uh, how the different methodologies uh, assess what you can actually afford to pay for college, and it's based on uh, on taking your 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 income and assets and and putting a weight against them. Basically, it's kind of like a tax. Uh, if you want to look at it that way, uh, your income is taxed at one rate, your investments are taxed at a different rate. Uh, 
a student's, uh, a student's income and assets are assessed at a much higher rate than the parents. And in the case of, uh, of assets, a much, much higher rate. So you need to know what's considered students' assets compared to what's considered parents' assets so that you, you, know, you, you can actually know or what, what you should do in terms of being able to position yourself better. Um, so, you know, in uh, here that brings up one point in terms of how one form will interpret uh, a financial uh, asset compared to a different, uh, to one from the other, the CSS profile compared to the FAFSA. Um, okay, for instance, if we were, it, it, I always like to say I hate to go into this thing, but it's it's like uh, the dilemma of the 529 plan. 529 plans were a great concept for saving for college, and that's what they actually do. They allow you to save for college. Uh, it's tax advantaged while you save, which you think is, oh, that's great. I, you know, not, necess- not on the federal form, but on your state form usually. Um, and, it, and it grows tax deferred. And if you use it for college, you don't pay taxes on the gain. However, in case of the divorce, uh, it, it becomes very, very tricky because uh, – when two parents are together, that 529 plan is considered an asset of the parent. However, if that 520, when you're divorced uh, and the 529 plan winds up being owned by the non-custodial parent uh, uh, and a distribution is made from that 529 plan, well, that, then that's no longer going to be considered to be an asset of the parent. That's going to be considered a third-party payment. And at that point, that is going to be looked at as untaxed income of the child, which is assessed at 50% on the FAFSA and 100% possibly. And some, some CSS profile schools or schools that use the CSS profile could look at that as a resource of the child. Uh, and that can count as 100% dollar for dollar uh, reduction in in the uh, eligibility for aid for on the following year that that distribution is made. So going back to what I was saying about the the, the um, formula that that's used, you've got the, the cost of attendance minus your EFC equals your need uh, minus the resources of the student equals your adjusted need. That's the formula. Uh, so it, how it can be affected and, and really cost you is like this. Uh, let's just say your uh, $20,000 is dispersed from a non-custodial parent-owned 529. And the custodial parent could wind up the following year paying at best $10,000 more for the, for, for, because of that distribution because, it's, because it was being assessed at 50%. Uh, 50% as untaxed income of the child, which is which is a, a difference of uh, whether it's counted as 5.64% as an asset of the parent. It's a huge, huge difference. Uh, a huge, huge difference. And if it's if it's counted dollar for dollar, that it's actually as though you might as well not have bothered to disperse it because you're going to it's giving back the twenty thousand dollars. Right. Okay. So. so- I want to just, you know, I, that was, I mean, it's so hugely important to really understand this, but again, I just want to break it down to make sure that all of that becomes clear. So I'm going to repeat it back a little bit and you just tell me if I'm getting it right. Okay, Judy? Go. 
Okay, that when we complete these applications, that the role of the people interpreting them on the other side is to really determine what our expected family contribution is going to be. How much can we afford to pay? And they've got their ways of figuring that out. But things that are either, so if I'm the custodial parent, my assets are looked at one way on those forms. My, for example, ex-spouse's assets might be looked at in a different way, and then assets that belong directly to my child are looked at in a third way in determining overall how much I can afford to pay, right? Correct. So, for example, if... You know, some amount, something that I have in my assets, you know, let's just say I've got a savings plan, you know, a savings account or something that has $20,000 in it. When you say assessed, really what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that they would look at that $20,000 and say, we expect that you would contribute 5.6% of that, for example, as the custodial parent, you know, of that particular asset or of all your assets toward the college payment, right? Uh, basically, you could look at it that way, but it was actually a determination that was fairly recently made, actually, that uh, on the federal forms that 529 plans and Coverdells uh, would be looked at as an asset of the parent. They didn't, they weren't always, but now they are. Right. So, right, so those things that are the asset of me as custodial parent are going to be assessed, meaning at this lower rate that some smaller percentage of that at those assets is what I'm expected to pay toward college. But if certain assets like a 529 plan or something belong to a third party, like an ex-spouse or something like that, that it would be looked at differently. We expect you to put we would assess those perhaps at 50% is what you said and say that, you know, we expect 50% of that money to go here. And if it's in the child's name, we expect 100% of it to go to college, right? No, it's not a question of it being in the child's name. Basically what happens is that asset switches if it's made by a non-custodial parent. The asset actually switches from being the asset of a parent to the asset of the child. And the assets of the child uh, uh, are, are actually uh, and not just an asset of the child. It's, it's looked at as untaxed income of the child, okay. which is assessed differently, even, you know, which is even assessed uh, higher than, uh, than an asset. It, it right. puts it in a very unattractive light. So really what we want to make sure we're doing is that we're doing some serious planning around what assets are in whose names before we even begin this process, well before we begin it, to know that we have things divided out in ways that will make us most favorable on these applications because we can, as you said, in a good faith, do things that we think will be helpful, but by placing them, you know, placing the assets in the wrong place, we could actually work against ourselves here. Uh, that is correct. And, but you don't realize if you're not aware of, of, how, of how these things are actually uh, interpreted, you're not aware that you're putting it in the wrong place. And that's right. the key. And that's what you have to know before you, you even you know, complete your, your, your divorce settlement. I mean, that's one thing that should be discussed. Who is going to, you know, who, what are you going to do with the 529 plan if you have one? Uh, 
there are several different ways you can approach it. Uh, You have to see which way is going to be beneficial for for your individual case. But uh, there are things that you you, there are things that you can do. some five some five twenty nine plans allow um, owners to be changed. Uh, that's not true of all of them. Uh, they can actually also they can even be dissolved. The owner can choose to dissolve them. They'll pay a ten percent penalty and plus they'll pay taxes on the gains. But you can actually dissolve them. Uh, so it's if the lower income parent often fears that you know that the ex spouse is you know is not going to, you know is going to do that it actually may not be a bad outcome it may actually be beneficial so it all depends on your situation okay that's good to know so let's go now into the part so uh, we're actually in a divorce settlement process whether we're with mediators or attorneys or whatever we're doing and some states you've indicated to me require that there be a college plan in there, a college funding plan in the divorce agreement. Pennsylvania is not one of those, so there's actually no requirement in Pennsylvania for a parent to pay for a child to go to college, and that's true in many other states as well. So, you know, from a college funding standpoint and the way that colleges look at it, you know, what makes sense to include either, you know, voluntarily in a divorce settlement process? What doesn't it make sense? Because most parents I know, you know, one of the first questions I get is, how can I force the other partner to pay for college or to include college in the settlement agreement. And from what you've told me, that may not even be what we most want to have happen right here. So, you know, tell well, us about I, that. I, I always think it's a good idea to have a college support agreement, but uh, if at all possible, do not include it as part of the divorce decree or the child uh, support uh, agreement. And that's because colleges can actually re- can demand to look at your divorce decree to determine the real ability for you to be able to pay for college. They look for those things. So uh, in, uh, in New Jersey, you may not have that option because uh, in New Jersey, parents are actually required to pay for college. So the ability to actually separate that out from the agreement, uh, it may, you, know, you may not have a choice in that matter. Uh, but in Pennsylvania, you do. So what is a college support agreement that is not included? Like what, what type of an agreement? Is that a contract? How is that, how is that created? Yeah, it's, what it's, makes another, it it's another contract, and you would spell out, and in it you would spell out the terms that, you know, of who's responsible for what uh, uh, in terms of paying for college. You know, define every single term in there and specify it and make everything as specific as possible. Uh, um, so that you you know who's responsible for what and for how long. Okay, and so that's an agreement that parents can make, or if I'm you know want to push for something that I push to have that separate agreement, and that becomes enforceable under you know other contract law, but not under the divorce decree. Correct. Okay, and you know the reason when if um. A couple wanted to create one of these agreements. Would they do that through their divorce attorneys or mediators, or yes. would they do that through some other professional? No, I, I would uh, usually uh, usually a, a divorce attorney will be able to actually tell you that. And yes, the divorce attorney could easily do that uh, if he's an attorney. <laughs> Contract mm-hmm. would be binding anyway. But yes, I mean you, uh, you don't need a separate person for that. Uh, and it's best to actually know, you know, be be able to actually uh, take all of this into account during the divorce process, so that you can have this all settled, you know, uh, you, you know, and and spelled out uh, in one process. 
So as we talk about all of this, so I'm going to play like in my head. So you're telling me, right, you know, fill out these forms. I want my income and my assets actually to show, appear in a certain way to make me eligible for the, for the most amount of money that I can get both through the CSS and the FAFSA. So through the school and through the government. And I'm still really worried, like, oh, my gosh, what if I get all of this money? Let's just say we do things smartly and we get this money, but we have all these loans. Because I know that there are people, you know, a little like me, too, who can just get anxious about having all these loans that are out there. But from a financial standpoint, it may not be the worst thing. So now that we've kind of, like, gone through a lot of this, like, take us back, like, what's the reason that we really do want to pursue this, that we maybe shouldn't be scared of these loans? Um, and how this plays into our overall financial picture. Uh, well, one, uh, it, it also can be a philosophical question in terms of uh, do you feel better about having uh, your child have skin in the game in terms of knowing that he actually uh, has has to pay for you know going through college. Will it, you know what, what you know what will be the effect on your child? Will it make him more conscientious and and want to be able to actually get that degree uh, in a timely manner? Uh, and actually, there are studies that have shown that that actually plays a part. Um, so that's just one thing. Uh, the fact that the that that um, the loans are deferred gives you a chance to be able to develop a plan for being able to pay them off even. You have time to be able to, to do something in that process. You've got, you've got four years. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's something that can actually help you be able to develop a plan to, to, to pay for it. You don't have to worry about paying for it all at once. Mm. And as you said, there are, you know, there's a lower interest rate on them than there are on other loans. So that if we were going to have to take out loans or if we would even consider taking money out of retirement to pay that overall in the long-term picture, the better financial decision would be to go with the lower rated loans. Yes, but it, it, every decision, I mean, every situation is different. You, you, know, you, 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 ba- right. you know, you basically have to look at every case individually and see what the best approach is. Uh, if, you know, if, if you uh, are, are able to be able, um, uh, if you're able to just pay it off, that's not necessarily the best thing to even do because that's money that's just gone. Uh, uh, you, you know, what can you do to, to best save for your retirement at the same time? It's all one continuum. Uh, mm. So uh, that's what you have to look at, how to be able to not just pay for college, but save for your retirement at the same time. Right, and for other big events that may come up or things exactly. like that. Exactly. So that's a great perspective is that we need a holistic financial plan for ourselves, not just be myopically focused on college at the Correct. moment that college comes up. So I think that's great advice. So one other place I think I just want to ask you about, because we have a few minutes less left here, is that we've heard a huge amount of information from you about paying for college, um, but in your work, you do more than just help people figure out how to pay for college because there's a whole other piece of your business that, you know, helps people decide how to make the right match for colleges. So just, you know, tell us a little bit about what the rest of your practice is because this is just one piece of it. What else do you do? Oh, uh, well, 
part of college success is actually being able to guide the student through the, the whole maze of actually getting ready to go into college. And there's a whole timeline. It starts so much earlier than people think. Um, it, it, colleges start to look at, at students actually in, believe it or not, in ninth grade. Uh, you know, it's, so it's not something that should just be considered about what, you know, what should I focus my life on? And people think that, oh, I'm a kid. I don't have any interest. It's really not true. You really do. And what we try to do is find out what your passion for learning really is and what you, what your, uh, what you, what areas really, uh, excite you and what, and what you're going to be interested. So that be, be able to focus your major um, and know what that is uh, as you're going through school, not have to worry about not having a clue of what you're going to decide to major in uh, until your senior year, because it's so important uh to, it's already been, there's a huge study that was just done a few years ago uh, that actually determined, uh, it was a great study, because it actually said the college success is based on uh, knowing who you are, knowing what your abilities are, knowing what your passions are, and the earlier you know that, the better. So that's what we try to do for a student, because if you can discover what your passions are and know what your abilities are, you'll know what major and and you'll know and you'll know what colleges to start focusing on so we we actually guide the student through that and we help them we help them determine what schools would be the best for them uh it's a whole process and and it really works well the longer time that you have but we've done it in really incredibly short periods of time but that's the student end and then we uh, we take that student through the whole we determine whether uh, the uh, the student is uh, will be, will perform better on it uh, on the ACT test as opposed to the SAT test, uh, which will actually put them in a better position for for being uh, accepted to college. Uh, there's also the, this thing that most people don't realize it's called uh, SEM, which is Strategic Enrollment Management, something that's really been developed in the last 20, 25 years. It uh, didn't exist when I went to school, uh, but it's extremely important in being able to position yourself from other students. Right. So, Judy, since we have just like a couple of minutes left, um, share with people how they can um, reach you. And also, I think you have a gift or a resource, actually, that you can point people to that may be helpful. So share with us how people can reach you and what's available. Okay. They can reach me. My email is uh, Judy at a. P-N-G, that stands for uh, Admitted, Pay Less, and Graduate. Uh, so it's Judy at APGCollegePlanning.com. Okay, great. And um, when they get there, what will they find that would be useful to them? Uh, okay, for, for today, I've actually compiled um, uh, a report on um, what you need to know about college financial aid and paying for college when you're divorced or separated. Uh, there, uh, when you get to my website, uh, you'll see a form on the right-hand page, right on the homepage. You'll, it's, it'll say, get our latest report. Uh, just fill that out, send it, and you will receive, uh, you will receive the uh, paying for college a- uh, after divorce uh, report for this time. Great. So just give us the website one last time so people can now jot that down. Go ahead. Uh, It's uh, www.apgcollegeplanning.com. 
Perfect. Well, Judy, I thank I am, you so uh, much. Yes, but, uh, one more thing. And for listening yep. to this call, I'm also offering uh, a half-hour, 30-minute free consultation. Um, and all you have to do is email me at the at, at Judy at a, uh, at apgcollegeplanning.com, and uh, we can set up a time. Great, and just indicate the support call in the subject line, Absolutely. and then Judy will give Put you a 30-minute consultation. Exactly. So I really want to thank you, Judy, for being here. It has been such an incredible wealth of information, that, and I'm so excited. I know people are going to go to the website to get the information in hard copy form, too. And, you know, please take advantage of that free consult. It will be a great benefit. And if you um, – in terms of reaching myself for the mediator, the mediation firm can be found at www.mainlinedivorcemediator.com. You've been getting emails through them. You've also been getting emails from me um, through that, and you will continue to get one following up from this. And for support going through or even considering is divorce right for me, what will be the impact on my kids, on everything else, you can find me at divorceessentials, with an S at the end, dot net. Um, and please feel free to reach out to us to ask us questions. You have Judy's contact information. You know how to find me. You know how to find the mediators. We're all here to really support you in going forward in a healthy way. So we thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.